So um, as 2019 was approaching, I had a feeling that the month of January would be a good time for us as a church to have a tune-up, for lack of a better word. Uh, everything in life requires maintenance, right? And uh, the same is true for any church. And part of that tune-up has included what we talked about over the last two weeks. We talked about our new vision slogan as a church, Truth, Grace, Life and what it means for us to be filled with truth and filled with grace. And this week, we're going to talk about an important part of any church tune-up, which is remembering the importance of the discipline of giving. And more specifically than that, the discipline of financial giving. All right. Now, here is my confession. I don't like talking about this topic. Uh, in fact, I haven't done a sermon on this topic for two years now. So rest assured, uh, if you're a regular at St. Paul's, you're not going to hear a lot about this subject. I don't like talking about it for at least five reasons. <laughs> so if you're taking notes, here's number one. <laughs> no, actually, this isn't part of your outline. but. Uh, one, because I don't want anyone to ever feel like the church just wants my money. Um, there's always somebody who, when the subject of church comes up, has that accusation, right? The church just wants my money. Two, I don't want anyone who's struggling financially to ever feel this extra burden or stress when they come to church, um, that they should be doing more than they're currently doing. Three, I think that for a church of our size, we actually have a very generous congregation, and I never want to imply otherwise. Four, because I want all of us to give freely and joyfully, not because we feel like our arms have been twisted or we've been manipulated. And actually, that's what the Bible encourages us to do, to, to give joyfully and not under compulsion. And five, and this is very obvious, but it's because when I talk about giving to the church, you all know that part of that money goes to pay my salary. So it can sound very self-interested to even raise this topic, right? So I, I like preaching the gospel. I don't like raising money. In my, in my uh, previous job, I was in campus ministry, and when you work in campus ministry with most parachurch organizations, you have to raise your entire personal salary by talking to individuals. And that was the part of the job that I just, I did not like, okay? I'm not saying it's fundamentally wrong, I'm just saying I did not enjoy it. So I like preaching the gospel, I don't like raising money, never have. And I also never want anyone to come to worship and feel like they've come to a pledge drive. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up watching a fair amount of PBS fair, you know, like Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, and Reading Rainbow. And I remember sometimes I'd be excited to watch my shows, and Mom would turn on the TV, and I'd see this. <laughs> and I'd think, who is this guy? And I'd think, well, maybe he'll start talking about donations soon, and we'll be able to move on, you know, to what I really came here for. And then you just keep going, and you'd realize, oh no, this isn't just a commercial, right? This is a commercial that doesn't stop. 
and there was never one time where the TV turned on and this was there where I said, oh goody, a pledge drive. <laughs> and I know that for some of us, when we come to church, it feels like we came for one thing, but then this is there, right? But here's the thing. Regardless of whether I like talking about this subject, and regardless of any of us like hearing about this subject, this topic is an important part of our spiritual lives. According to Crown Financial Ministries, there are 2,350 verses in the Bible that have to do with handling money and possessions. So the Bible doesn't neglect this topic, and that means it would be wrong for us to neglect this topic. Now, to be honest, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning, I actually already said two years ago, but I figure a lot of you probably weren't here two years ago, and I didn't even remember what I said, so you probably don't remember a lot of it either. Um, it's not going to be exactly the same, but there will be some, uh, some crossover. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he told parables, right? And in a lot of those parables, the human situation is represented by the concept of a steward. And a steward is somebody who has been entrusted with something, you know, like a piece of land or a sum of money or a home. And they are entrusted to care for that thing. It's kind of like uh, if you go to the library, you take out a library book. The book doesn't belong to you, but you can use it, right? You are a steward of that library book for the time that you have it, but you have to take good care of it, right? Because you know a time's going to come where you're supposed to bring it back. And what we see in Jesus' parables over and over again with this theme of human beings are, are stewards that have been entrusted with, with something is that this is the way we're supposed to view our entire lives. Okay, It's all on loan from God. We are all stewards of the life that God has given us. Uh, our Talents are on loan from God. Our time is on loan from God. Uh, our uh, possessions are on loan from God. And of course, our money is on loan from God. All of it ultimately belongs to him, and we are just temporary stewards of all these things. And our job is to take care of it and use it well. And I recognize this is a very countercultural perspective. Right? Because we, we tend to think of our lives and our possessions very much as our own. My life. My stuff. Right? And the perspective Jesus calls us to is radically different. It's, my life is not my own. And I am responsible to the one who gave me this gift of life to honor him with the way that I use it. And one of the fundamental ways that we honor the gift giver, the one who gave us everything, is how we manage our money. Throughout scripture, there are several consistent teachings on how we're supposed to honor God with our money. And I want to identify three of those this morning. So if you're taking notes, this is the first one in your outline. Consistent teaching is we're supposed to help those in need. We're supposed to help those in need. 1 John 3.17 is one verse that puts this in very strong terms, terms that probably should make some of us feel uncomfortable, if not all of us. Uh, it says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
In other words, there is a link between the genuineness of our faith and whether or not we use what we have to bless those in need. If the love of God is really in us, we're going to feel compelled to share what we have with those who are less fortunate. Second thing Scripture consistently teaches, hoarding wealth is foolish and wrong. Hoarding wealth is foolish and wrong. A great example of this is a parable that Jesus tells in uh, Luke 12, starting in verse 16. He says, The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now I realize some of us might hear that parable, and our first thought is, does this mean Jesus doesn't want me to have a 401k? Is a retirement plan a bad thing? If you want my opinion on that, that's not really what Jesus is getting at here. Okay? Part of being a wise steward of our finances is planning for the future. right? And if we're planning for the future and we're honest, we recognize a day will probably come when we are not capable of working for our income. And in that situation, in order to ensure that we're not a financial burden to anyone else, it's wise to put some money aside for that day. I don't, I don't think Jesus would, uh, would judge us for that. But there's a difference between what this parable describes and why saving for the future. What this parable describes is a man who has way more than he needs, right? And he keeps it all to himself. And what's the reason? To take life easy. Take life easy. There's a difference between doing what we, we should to prepare for the future and just taking life easy. And the problem with gaining wealth just so that we can take life easy is, guess what? There's no cap to how much money you can use <laughs> to take life easy. There's no limit. There's no point that you reach where you go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is enough. I'll be able to take life easy. If that's our goal, then we're just going to keep collecting more and more and more money because the more and more money you have, the more assurance you have, I'm always going to be able to take life easy. I'm going to be able to take life really easy. So we're going to just keep on collecting more and more money and filling more and more barns. And the tragedy of that is that when all that hoarded wealth is just sitting there reassuring us you'll always be able to take it easy, we miss out on opportunities to help those in need, to help people who are desperate just for a moment of feeling like they can take it easy. While we're, we're hoarding everything up, opportunities to be generous just come and go, pass us by. And meanwhile, the God who ultimately owns all that wealth, the one who allowed us to have it in the first place, is thinking, this is really poor management of my estate. 
You know, I want my wealth to be unleashed. I want it to be a blessing. I don't want it to just all be hoarded up in these barns. <clears throat> so, hoarding is foolish and wrong. And then a third consistent teaching, this is the last one we're going to look at, is that part of our money is supposed to be set aside for the worshiping community's purposes. I realize that's kind of a long sentence. It's worded very specifically. I thought about this for a while. <laughs> part of our money is supposed to be set aside for the worshiping community's purposes. Now, you might be wondering, why didn't you just say, for the church's purposes? Why this specific phrase, worshiping community? Well, the reason is because the church is very broad, and I actually mean to say that Scripture is saying something more specific. The church is not any individual building. The church actually isn't a building at all, right? We understand this. The church is all the people throughout the world who follow Jesus. So if I just say the church, that just means a lot of people, right? And the church's purposes are well, our ultimate purpose is to glorify God, but the ways that that is expressed are nearly infinite, right? There's so many ways that we, that God leads us as the church to bless the world. And, and God calls us uniquely to do it in different ways, you know? There are some people who could really feel called to, to for example, donate money to causes uh, for uh, preserving the environment. Or people who could feel really called to donate money for... Um, Improving education in their state or something like that. And these are all things that God may call us to do because God calls the church to be salt and light in the world and to make earth more like heaven, right? And so, generally speaking, if I just said for the church's purposes, that could mean so many things, okay? But the Bible does consistently teach not only that we're supposed to be giving in a general sense to help make earth more like heaven, but it also specifically talks about giving to the worshiping community, the local expression of the church uh, that we're a part of. Now, why do I say that? I say that because throughout the Bible, there is an expectation that if we worship God, uh, we're not just going to do it alone. We're actually going to do it with a community as well. We're going to gather with a local expression of the church, and we're going to worship God together. We're going to together participate in the sacred rituals of communion and baptism, and we're going to study scripture together and talk about it, and we're going to pray for one another, and when some of us are going through hard times, we're going to help support each other through that. You know, this is why, when you look at the Bible, especially the New Testament, these are all letters, and they're not usually written to individuals, right? Most of the time, these letters are written to whole groups of people, to worshiping communities, right? You've got the letter to the Romans. You've got the letter to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians. There's an expectation. If you are part of the church, the family of God, you're also going to be meeting with a local expression, a worshiping community of that church. And there's actually uh, places in Scripture that warn us not to fall out of this pattern, 
of meeting with a local expression of the church. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And so the pattern we see in Scripture is we're supposed to, be, to belong to a worshiping community and some of our giving is supposed to go to help support the worshiping community. Okay, so you, you might be thinking, okay, well, I agree with you, Ryan, that the pattern in Scripture is that we're supposed to belong to a local worshiping community, but where are you getting this thing about giving to the local worshiping community? Well, again, this is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. So in the Old Testament, things were different then, okay, but there was a very structured way that this, this happened. Uh, in, in Israel, in the Old Testament, there were a group of people known as the Levites. And there were people who God had called to take care of the temple and to order and preside over the nation's worship. And the Levites, because they were full-time priests, couldn't work normal, so to speak, jobs. And so their a portion of Israel's income, a tithe, 10%, went to support the Levites. Okay? Um, now, in the New Testament, we don't hear specifically about tithing, but we do see the principle continuing that those in a worshiping community are supposed to give money to help support the worshiping community because there's a recognition that, like with the Levites, there are some people who are called to be full-time teachers, preachers of the gospel, and they do need financial support in order to do the work that God's called them to do. So one example, one very clear example in scripture is the Apostle Paul, right? Paul wrote a large portion of the New Testament, and he received financial support from worshiping communities. And he taught that it was right for someone like him to be compensated for that. And we're going to look right now at a passage in scripture. It's from uh, 1 Corinthians 9. And before we read this, um, I want to let you all know, this is a passage that is used both by people who believe that full-time ministers should be compensated and by people who think they should not. And both people use the same passage to argue the same point. Now, I come down, obviously, on the side that says that Paul's arguing that they should be compensated. And hopefully this will be a little bit of a lesson in how to read the Bible well, okay? But let's look at this together. It's almost comical how much it seems like Paul's going back and forth here. So if you want to follow along, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting in verse 11, Paul says, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much to ask if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? That sounds like he's saying we should be compensated, right? Okay. Well, then he says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So now it sounds like full-time ministers shouldn't be compensated, right? But wait. Then, <laughs> right after that, 
he says, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on that altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So right here, you see Paul specifically referencing the past history of the Levites, right? And how the Levites were supported. And he's basically saying that should continue in the church in one form or another, right? That those who make their living uh, off of preaching the that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from it. Okay, but up, uh, up, uh, look what happens next. Picking up in verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Okay, so now he's like. Don't ever think about giving me money. I don't want any money. I don't want anyone to think that I want your money, right? So, okay, all right. So what is it? Well, there's two verses in the next letter to the Corinthians that I think put this in perspective, okay? Again, this is a lesson in learning how to to read the Bible well. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, he says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and you needed something, I wasn't a burden to anyone, for the brother who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. All right. Paul didn't ask the Corinthians for support. But the only reason that he was able to do that was because other churches, churches in Macedonia, were supporting him from a distance to be able to do what he was doing. You see that? So I think it's safe to say that Paul does think that worshiping communities should support full-time ministers of the gospel. But notice Paul's very tactful. He's careful. He doesn't want anyone to think that his main motive is getting money, because it's not. It's practical that he needs to be supported, but that's not his main motive. So when he's working with a community where he's not sure that they really trust him, he doesn't ask them for money, right? When he's with the Corinthians, he's, he's, he's not going to do that. But the reason he's able to do that is because other congregations that already trust him are making it possible for him to do that. So, Paul teaches that this principle of giving uh, support to the worshiping community, this principle which existed in the Old Testament, is supposed to continue in some form in the Christian church. There is some form of it that's supposed to carry over from Judaism into um, the Christian expression of worship. Okay, so now you might be wondering, does that mean, like in the Old Testament, that we're supposed to all be tithing a tenth of our income to support the worshiping community? Does that principle roll over into the new? So here's what I'll say about that. We don't live any longer under the Mosaic Law. We don't. And there is no specific mention of tithing in the New Testament. That word actually uh, doesn't appear in any of the letters. 
So I cannot stand up here and tell you with certainty God's will is for you to give 10% of your income. But I do know this. God's will is for us to be generous. It's undeniable that a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is is to be a person who gives, and and a person who gives sacrificially, right? Uh, And part of God's will is for us to do the the three things that I just talked about, to help those in need, um, to, to not hoard, and to help support a worshiping community. And although I don't want to get legalistic about this, I do think that the practice of tithing is a great way to start doing those things. It's a practical way to start doing them. Um, I'm not trying to toot my own, my own horn here, but I do practice tithing myself. I have, for many years, uh, any, money, any money I make, any gifts that I'm given, when I deposit them in the bank, I just automatically take 10% out, I move it to another account, and I know that account is forgiving. Right? It's for giving to the worshiping community and for giving to other causes that the Lord leads me uh, to give to. That's the way that I have operated uh, for a long time now. And it's always the first line item in the budget. When I'm putting together the budget, it's the first thing. Okay, Here's how much I'm making. Take out the tithe. <clears throat> um, I, and I, I really believe tithing is really one of the simplest, most practical most concrete ways that we can exercise faith. Because all of us have to make a living, right? And then we have to decide what are we going to do with this money uh, that we've been giving, given. <clears throat> and so it's a practical, concrete way to exercise faith because as we do it, we trust that God will provide what we need as we commit to give away a portion for his purposes. Now again, Okay, I'm not going to say that God demands 10% from you. That's not how this works. Uh, Again, I think that's a great place to start. Um, But I don't know for sure what God's going to tell you to do. You know, maybe you're well off, and you're actually really supposed to to give away more than 10% of your money. Or maybe you are just really scraping by, you've never tried this giving thing before, and it is a huge leap of faith just for you to give away 5%. Okay, well, you can start there. But I do believe that in the American church as a whole, I'm not pointing fingers at this church, I'm just saying in the American church as a whole, we could give a lot more than we do. Uh, When I preached on this subject two years ago, I uh, talked about an article that I had seen posted by Relevant Magazine, and it was all about tithing in the church. It was titled, What would happen if the church tithed? And uh, I'd like to share this information again. I I honestly don't know where these numbers are coming from, so take them with a grain of salt, okay? But whatever the case, they are thought-provoking. So according to the article, only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation in America tithes. And uh, Christians are actually tithing today about 2.5% of their income, which is low because during the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Now, 
I think it's possible that a lot of Christians are still tithing, but they're giving a lot of their money to parachurch organizations or to relief networks and that sort of thing. So this, this figure not, might not be entirely uh, accurate in representing the generosity of, of Christians in this day and age. Um, but the article asks us to imagine what would it be like if American churchgoers really did all start giving 10% of their income uh, to their local worshiping communities, what, what would happen? And the article estimates that churches would then have $165 billion more dollars than they currently do uh, to use and distribute. $165 billion. That's a big, a big number. And keep in mind, that's with the attendance in church staying exactly the same, Right? All of a sudden, the church as a whole in America would have this much more uh, money available. And then it asks us to think about that money in the context of some of the world's ills. Uh, so again, take these numbers with a grain of salt. I don't know how they figure this out, but they say $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. Um, $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. And this, I thought this is interesting. 1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. You know, missionaries are always trying to raise support so that they, they can go and share the gospel in other countries. And, you know, I guess if we, if we had a billion more dollars to use, um, that could be the current missionaries could all be taken care of. Um, now, if you're doing the math there, that's 53 billion, which means we still got 112 billion dollars left with to play with, you know, to improve the sound system and that sort of thing. So, <laughs> um, th those are some shocking numbers. Now, I'm a little skeptical that if all the churches in America suddenly had that money, they know where to put it exactly in order to solve all those problems. So, again, I'm, I'm, we need to take this with uh, with a grain of salt. But, uh, but at the very least, this shows us that if we all were tithing throughout America, there'd be a lot more money available to remedy a lot more of the world's problems. And imagine if the church as a whole really was doing an excellent job of directing those funds to remedying the problems in the world. What an incredible testimony to the power of God that would be. What an incredible witness it would be to draw people to Jesus. Um, it's it's, it's mind-blowing. When the church unites in sacrificial giving, there is so much power in that. So, if you don't tithe, if you don't give it all to the local worshiping community, I encourage you, pray about starting. Because when we all get in this together, amazing things can happen. And I encourage you to do that, not just so that people in need can be blessed and so that our church and other churches can have enough money to pay their pastors and rent their worship spaces and give to the needy. I also encourage you to do it because there really is joy in giving. There really is. Our God delights in giving. That's his makeup. That's his nature. And when his spirit is in us, his spirit delights when we give, and we feel his delight. You know, even if the sinful, self, 
self-centered part of us wants to hold on to that money, uh, the Holy Spirit still gets a little thrill <laughs> when we give. And you can, you can feel it. I know I have. I, I, there's, there's times where that part of me, there's that part of me that just wants to cling to it. But when I give it away, there's also this feeling of like, yeah, you know what? That did feel good. There, there's a joy in giving. The Holy Spirit gets a little thrill out of giving. And when we give, the spirit within us feels that thrill and we share in that. Before we close, I want to speak directly to any of us who are feeling grieved by this topic because we feel like we just don't have anything to give right now. Uh, Maybe we're trying to support a family, we're trying to pay off debt, and we are just in dire straits. You know, we're stretched thin, and then we come to church, and the pastor talks about the joy of giving and tells us to think about giving away 10% when we really think, if I could just make 20% more, then I'd actually be able to survive. And then we feel overwhelmed. So if that's you, I just, I want to be very, very clear. This message is not meant to stress you out, okay? In fact, you might be in a situation where you really need to be the recipient of somebody else's tithe. Uh, And that's okay. You know, this is is, uh, part of why when we all practice this discipline of giving, uh, it's part of why we do it because when we do it, we can support those who are in need and those among us who are in need. Here at St. Paul's, a portion of all the offerings that are given actually goes into a crisis fund to help those among us when we're really in in a tough spot. Um, So if you do find yourself in a real financial crisis, please let me or Keith know because we might be able to help. The fund is limited. It goes up the more that people give, right? (laughs) Um, But it does exist, and, and the church might be able to help, and we believe that that is part of being the church. So again, if you are really struggling, this is not intended to make you more stressed. Don't let it make you more stressed. But I want to close by also cautioning you not to reject the idea of giving entirely, not to just dismiss it. Because there's something about giving, even when it's difficult, that provides us with an opportunity to exercise faith. And we know from Scripture that God really appreciates it when we take that step of faith. So I want to close with uh, this story from the Gospels that illustrates that. This is Mark 12, uh, 41 through 44. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And what I want us to notice there is just how highly Jesus thinks of this poor widow. In God's eyes, this tiny little amount of money that she's given is actually worth 
way more than the large amounts of money that the rich people have given. So if you don't have an abundance to give from, keep in mind that the little that you give in God's eyes may be worth far more. There's a, there's a spiritual value to our giving that is not necessarily correlated to the literal value of the giving. When we give sacrificially, it pleases God. Whether sacrificial giving for us means a quarter or thousands of dollars. Either way, our sacrificial giving gives joy to God. God uses it to spread his kingdom, and it transforms us for the better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who gives, that you give sacrificially. And Lord, I pray that as your people, we also would give, that we would be generous, that we wouldn't hoard, that we would support your kingdom's work in the world. Um, Lord, I pray that if we just have a, a desperate desire to cling to whatever we have, that you would Loosen our, our fists, our spiritual fists, Lord. Um, help us to open our hands so that we can give freely. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we loosen our fists and as we give, Lord, uh, both in this church and in churches across the world, uh, that the world would be blessed and would see powerful evidence uh, that you are real and that you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.